Support for WERU comes from Maine Farmland Trust, a member-supported nonprofit organization focused on reviving the working landscape and securing a future for farming in Maine. More information on protecting farmland and supporting farmers at mainefarmlandtrust.org. The time's 10 o'clock and you are tuned to WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, 99.9 Bangor and streaming online everywhere at WERU.org. Common Ground Radio with your host CJ Walk is up next. Good morning and welcome to Common Ground Radio, an hour-long discussion of local food and organic agriculture here in the state of Maine and beyond. Brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. My name is CJ Walk, and I am your host for today's show. Common Ground Radio is a monthly show airing on the first Friday of every month at 10 a.m. right here on WERU. Today, we are going to be talking about growing rice in the Northeast. And if you thought it couldn't be done, stay with us and we'll tell you how. Uh, I have a couple guests with me on the show today, but before we get to introductions and discussion, I'd like to make listeners aware of a few food and farming-related events they may find of interest here in our community. So uh, tomorrow, on the 8th, Mofka's Organic Orcharding Workshop Series has a bud grafting class that runs from 10 to 3, and that's at North Branch Farm in Monroe. For more office, you, or for more info, you can call the Mofka office at 568-4142 or go to uh, www.mofka.org. On August 25th is one of the farm training projects workshops about preserving the harvest and a hands-on food preservation class, and that's through the Humane Cooperative Extension down in Lisbon Falls, which you can find more information through your local uh, or your county Cooperative Extension Office. And then on the 26th, another farm training project workshop is at the Johnny Selected Seeds Farm. They're giving a tour there, and that starts at 5 p.m. More info on that can also be found through MOFCA at the website, mofka.org. And then looking into September, just to give people a heads up, from September 25th through the 27th is the annual Common Ground Country Fair. Um, so keep an eye out for that one. So now that we get past the calendar events, I remind listeners that today we are talking about growing rice in the Northeast, and I have two guests with me today for the show, and I will briefly introduce them both. But first, I want to let listeners, uh, I want to explain the format for today's show, because both of our guests are on the telephone line, so we do not have an open line to take in calls. Um, However, I'll be able to give contact info at the end of the show for people to follow up and look for more information on their own. So what we're going to try today as kind of a first, first try so we could get some comments in since the phone lines would be tied is that people with Internet access can go to uh, WERU's Facebook page and you will see a post there for the show. I will be looking at that post and I will, um, I will pose any of the questions posted there to our guests so that they can answer them or address them. Um, And for those folks that do not have uh, internet access, I apologize for the lack of telephone today, but again, I will give out contact info at the end so we can follow up with you after the show um, and answer any questions you may have. And then I guess one technical note for you Facebook users is to please 
post your comment directly below the post, not on any of the sidebars or chat places there, and I will see what's going on. So technical pieces all aside, we'll get back to uh, discussing about discussing growing rice here in the Northeast, and I'll briefly introduce my two guests that are both on the phone today, and then I'll give them a chance to say a little bit about the work that they do um, in their areas. So first we have... First, we have on the phone uh, Laura Hill, who is the interim co-director for the Integrated Biological Sciences Program, which is at the University of Vermont Plant and Biology Department. Good morning, Laura. Hi, thanks for having me, CJ. Sure, thank you. Thank you for being here, Laura. And then we also have on the other line, we have Ben Rooney of Wild Folk Farm, which is over in Benton, Maine. How are you doing this morning, Ben? I'm doing well, CJ. How about you? Fine, thanks. I'm glad to have you kind of both on the show through through various means here so we can talk about rice in, in the Northeast. Um, so first step, I'd just like to get back and start with Laura. And I guess, Laura, if you could just give kind of a brief introduction of yourself and the work that you've done related to rice over at UVM. Sure. Thank so you. I am a lecturer in the plant biology department at the University of Vermont and in 2012, I received a Northeast SARA grant, Sustainable Agriculture Research and Extension Grant, to um, work with two farmers in Vermont. One was in the Champlain Valley, and the other farmer is in Moortown, which is near um, Montpelier. So we worked and collaborated on a rice research project where we tested four different rice varieties to see. Um, I can go into more detail about the project a bit later, but our main interest was what what can we grow here? And in addition to what can we grow, how will these different varieties be able to withstand what's to be expected in the future of farming in the Northeast, given the effects of climate change and what we expect um, in our near future? So we manipulated water levels, and we got some interesting results from that. So I'm happy to talk more about that a bit later. Um, the project was a two-year project from 2012 to 2014, and... Um, and it was great collaborating with farmers. The Northeast there has great grants available for anybody who is out there listening who is farming and interested in, in, in farming anything, really, but especially rice. There are partner grants that farmers can partner with academics and um, get, get grant funding to do projects on farm. All right. That sounds like a, a good research or a resource. And I think we will get into some more of the details of the research you did as we, as we move through the show. Um, and then I wanted to move over to Ben. And uh, Ben, if you could just give kind of a brief introduction, maybe tell us a bit about Wild Folk Farm and um, and the work that you're doing there with rice. Yeah, so Wild Folk Farm's in Benton. It's a small, diversified farm. Uh, I've been managing the farm for three seasons. We've mainly done, we've mainly made our money from small, from vegetables and fruits, a lot of annual plots, um, and definitely trying to set up a lot of perennial systems farm is a no-till farm, and yeah, we got into rice a few years ago just as an experiment. We have straight clay soil. Um, all the farms around the area did not buy that land for a reason, and that's because it was a lot of clay, and it's been a blessing and a curse having having that soil, um, trying to work it into growing different annuals, but we experimented with rice, and it really seems to like that soil. Uh, we have some flood patties right now. We've we've gone from a 10 by 10 plot. We started with some seeds from the USDA, and 
and we're up to an acre of rice paddies right now, of which around a quarter acre is planted with rice. And so, yeah, this is year three of growing rice in Maine for us. Okay. All right. Sounds interesting out there. Um, so I guess maybe just for listeners that may not be familiar with, I mean, maybe have eaten rice, but are not familiar with the cultivation mm-hmm. of rice, um, uh, Laura, could you just kind of maybe explain is, you know, the life cycle of the rice plant itself? Is it an annual? Is it a perennial? Mm-hmm. Um, sure, I'm happy to. So rice you. is, uh, as probably many of you know, at least worldwide, is one of our top most consumed grains. So it, it, it is a grain, it's a grass, and it grows like any other grass. It is an annual in our region. Um, so if a farmer is interested in growing rice, he or she has to germinate the seed and then transplant the young seedlings into the patties. And I also talk about how you can grow rice in buckets quite easily, actually, five-gallon buckets as well. Um, so once the seedling is established, it starts to grow, and it grows quite fast. Um, it puts out tillers or stems, rice uh, uh, grass stems, and each of those becomes... Well, most of those become a reproductive stem, meaning that flowers are produced, grass flowers are produced, and then um, grass is, uh, most grass is wind pollinated, and that's true for rice as well. So the pollen gets swept around by the breeze and hopefully it gets, you know, uh, fertilizes a, a receptive <clears throat> female flower, and then a grain is produced. And once the grain is produced, after the grain is harvested, as with any grain, um, you have to work pretty hard and use some machines usually to separate the the good stuff, the stuff that you want to eat from the from the chaff, from the part that's inedible. So there's a there's a period of threshing and dehulling and and then even polishing. Some rice is polished as well. So the rice that the more cold tolerant strains is um, rice goes by the the Latin name Ariza sativa and the strain that grows up here and is, and is cold tolerant is japonica. So this is the short grain rice. The longer grain rice is the rice that, that doesn't tolerate the colder temperatures and must be grown further down, down south. Um, rice, and I'll talk more about our results. We got some interesting results with, with water. I think when people think about rice, they think about flooded fields and paddies. Um, we demonstrated with our results that the, that the paddies really don't need to be flooded, um, but the but the soil does have to be wet. So rice has been grown and um, selectively bred to really be able to tolerate the wet conditions, wet soil conditions, although there are varieties of upland rice that can tolerate dry soils. Most of the rice that we grow here or would grow here in the Northeast does at least need saturated soils to grow. Okay. All right, that's interesting. That um, I think most images are the the rice paddies uh, flooded with the plants growing in the water. Um, so it's interesting to hear about the the dryland upland rice. Um, ben, I wanted to ask you about um, you know how you're actually cultivating the rice there, and in terms of you know you're starting your your germinating seeds, you're starting transplants, uh, transplanting them out, kind of what that what that picture looks like. Could you tell us a bit of that to get tried a, a, a kind of visual there, I guess? Yeah, you kind of want some of the time frame. Some of the, yeah, some of the time frame and just some of the, the, some of the steps, I guess, um, 
Laura outlined some of the cultivation steps there, but I just wanted to hear more specific mm-hmm. to your farm and what you're doing. Yeah, well, so we've been doing a few things because we're kind of in a phase now where we're definitely experimenting with different growing methodologies. Uh, the standard one we're going with is soaking the seed in mid-April, and then we start transplant 10 or so days. Well, then the, the seeds germinate, and those go into the seedling trays for six weeks or so, and we transplant them out after danger of frost. So they're living in our greenhouse before then, and then we're starting to harden them off. You know, mid-May, our frost date is the end of May around here. Um, Transplant it out, and during that time, too, we're also cultivating this uh, water fern called a Zola. And this plant's really cool because it creates a symbiotic relationship with the cyanobacteria, and it fixes nitrogen. So... Once it gets warm enough, after the rice has been transplanted into the patties, which is late late May, um, we start trying to introduce the azola, and it really likes the heat. So last year the azola took off mid June. This year it took off in July, and we did a little comparison with the azola versus duckweed, which is which looks like azola. So if people are trying to picture what this plant looks like. It kind of looks like duckweed. It's that fond little floating uh, water fern you have. Okay. Um, but the azola takes off. It spreads so fast. When it's, when it's warm out, it'll double in size in five days. So it's basically taken over all of our patties and provided this nice ground cover to keep weeds out, to provide area for frogs, um, to fix nitrogen. And we also raise ducks. So the dust can introduced into the patty mid-June, two weeks after the rice has been introduced. And then it's just kind of a, a dance, just kind of juggling. You want the, the rice and the ducks to try to grow together so the ducks aren't too big. And you just kind of wait for a few months. The rice is growing. The ducks are in there. We've definitely done some water pulsing. And then come early August, the rice starts to flop over, and then the ducks start to want to eat it. So you want to get the ducks out of the patty at that point. And then middle of September, depending on the variety, the rice is more or less ready to harvest. And in the past seasons, we just used some sickles to harvest it and then just dried it open air under a roof. And we have yet to get processing equipment, and uh, that's something I can go into. That's kind of a whole other topic. But that's kind of the, the timeline, at least, for what we've been doing. I'd like to say, too, that we also experimented some with direct seeding this year. And it seems to be going pretty well. As, as we can kind of control the water levels in our patties, we can keep them flooded, let the seeds soak to the bottom, and then when the water drains, let the seeds come up a bit. And that rice is two weeks behind. It's mm-hmm. a variety called Fayayuki, which is kind of a standard for people doing it in Vermont and I guess what we're doing here. And it's two weeks behind, which should still fit in our window because our rice was ready three or four weeks before it needed to be last year. And it actually kind of helps with the ducks because if we can have a patty that has direct seeded rice, then we can move the ducks to that patty once the other rice is almost mature. So in some ways it's kind of nice to have a rice that's mature a little later. 
So it's kind of like a bit of a rotation there to move the ducks around and and not let them consume yeah. the grain. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you have your plants are in in are they in standing water all the time or pulsed occasionally? Uh yes. <laughs> we've been <laughs> we've been doing some of both. Okay. Season, we did one patty that was just standing water and some that are pulsed. There we we're pulsing them before the ducks are in, so kind of that few week period when it seems that the, the rice is in a real strong tillering phase and really trying to get some root development. So for the first few weeks, we have been pulsing the water in most of the patties, and then once the ducks are in, you kind of need to keep water in there because if it's dry, the ducks might muddy up the roots. They might knock over the plants. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right. And then I would guess just in terms of the plant itself, I had a couple questions, which, uh, Laura, I would direct to you, just thinking about uh, the roots of the plant being in water or being in soaked soil where, you know, most other, most other crops, if the roots stay, you know, soaked or wet too long um, and don't have access, access to air in the soil, they would suffer. Uh, and I'm just wondering what it is about rice that makes them maybe tolerant of that or able to adapt to that type of situation. Yeah, interesting question. So when you take a, if you were to take a cross section, a cut, you know, cut one of the roots of, of a rice plant and look at it under a microscope, you'd see a lot of um, airspace. They actually have specialized air chambers in the stem and in the roots that allow aeration of the submerged parts, so the, the lower parts of the stem if the patty is flooded and then the roots, of course. So the plant has adapted over time to being in these um, being in the in these soils and having enough air to allow for the roots to breathe and undergo <clears throat> respiration to to more or less allow the plant to to withstand these temp- to to withstand the saturated soils. So um, I if if you if you're interested, take a look online. You might find something. If you uh, if you type in rice root cross section, you can actually see these big air chambers that take up, I would say, about 70, 75% of the, of the root, of the, you know, the actual root. So very interesting uh, way that plants have, have evolved to tolerate these, um, these aer- anaerobic conditions in the soil. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting adaptation. And, then, and so the timing, I guess the plant itself, it would be very, very sensitive to frost in our area. Yes, definitely. And okay. as as, um, as Ben mentioned, you have to be careful with timing of when you're transplanting your really delicate seedlings into the into the field. And one thing I, I mentioned before that rice doesn't really need standing water. One thing that that has shown to be important, at least in our study, was that if pl- is the importance of keeping the newly transplanted seedlings in standing water early in that season and it's mostly because of the heat that the water retains mm-hmm. and then slowly releases it. So um, so it's important first when you transplant it to have that standing water so that the plant can withstand potential frost or colder temperatures. Um, but then you can allow the soil to dry out, um, maybe not dry out completely, uh, we got some interesting results with the Hayayuki strain that Ben mentioned. He's growing on his farm. The Hayayuki really does not tolerate dry soil, so it does at least the soils have to be at least saturated. But if you're doing um, farming as Ben's doing with ducks, then of course you have to consider the ducks and what they require. So with mm-hmm. the standing water, 
Um, we did a bit with the azola, the water fern that was mentioned, and this azola duck rice is an ancient technique used in Asia for thousands and thousands of years. So it's a nice relationship among these three different organisms that can build soil fertility and feed the ducks and keep weeds and, and pests down in the paddies. Okay, okay. And then, Ben, I wanted to ask you about... Um, Maybe before, what what got you interested in growing rice and if you had some experience um, maybe in other parts of the globe uh, with rice mm-hmm. cultivation? Yeah, I guess the start of that story for me is I've always been interested in small-scale grain growing and wanting to, yeah, the first time I used a size and cut down some wheat and made some bread, pretty transformative. Mm-hmm. And we tried doing some of that on the farm and just with the clay soils, it just did not work and so it's almost gave up on growing grains at the farm, at least until we changed the soils around. And he happened to take a trip to the Philippines to visit some uh, family-in-laws and, yeah, saw some beautiful rice paddies just totally integrated with the surrounding area and the wetlands and people working the fields. And down in the Philippines, they have this really renowned uh, rice research institution. It's called Erie. And so I got to learn a little bit about that and see all the research they're doing. And didn't really make didn't really connect the dots. Came back up here and read this book that talked about all the power of ducks. It's probably my favorite farm book. And it talked about the system of growing rice and azola and ducks together. And yeah, then I just looked online because it was kind of putting some pieces together that, oh, they're doing this in northern Japan. And lo and behold, I guess it's usual something Vermont was already ahead of us and yeah there's been some fair studies thank you that I that I looked at and those have definitely been really helpful and then I saw some other farmers kind of giving it a go and that's kind of what introduced us and me to giving it a try okay all right well let's um I just want to take a minute to remind listeners that you are tuned in to WERU, and this is Common Ground Radio, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. And today we are talking about growing rice in the Northeast, and my guests are Laura Hill from the University of Vermont and Ben Rooney of Wild Folk Farm in Benton, Maine. Um, and the other reminder is that we have both guests on the telephone lines today, so we are not taking in calls However, if you are Facebook-friendly, you can add a comment uh, on WERU's page, and I will see that if you would like to ask a question, and I can address uh, our guests from there. So um, so another thing, just thinking about the cultivation piece and what makes rice kind of unique, um, I wanted to ask, ask you, Laura, another question just about uh, rice being a heavy feeder for nutrients, and I imagine especially nitrogen, that's why they're being grown uh, with these uh, leguminous ferns, I guess, and, and the ducks running through. Um, but I was just wondering about are there issues with nitrogen and kind of the management of nitrogen in that type of paddy, thinking that nitrogen could be soluble or leaching away in that type of situation? Right. So my initial interest in working with rice was um, due to the the heavy clay soils that we have in the Champlain Valley of Vermont. And there's there's multiple reasons, but one of the reasons is that as many waterways are, they're plagued by agricultural runoff, nitrogen phosphorus runoff mainly. Um, We have some issues here in Lake Champlain. So 
my initial interest as a plant ecologist was what capacity can do we have to grow rice to diversify existing farms, particularly dairy farms, and to mitigate the runoff that would normally just go right into into the rivers and into the lake. So if we were to utilize the heavy clay soils, the wet areas of farms that don't really, um, they're not very conducive even to haying or to growing any other types of crops, could we use those, uh, construct, do some earthwork, construct, construct rice paddies, and actually mitigate some of the runoff from going into the lake and into our other waterways? So you're right in that rice is a heavy feeder, nitrogen and phosphorus. We did use fish emulsions and also manures. I'm sure the ducks are helping Ben with just um, the manure that they're adding to the soil in addition to the azola. So uh, the the most important stage to fertilize rice, at least what we found, is at the seedling stage. So prior to transplant, those seedlings really need a boost of manure or fish emulsion. Um, with all those rich nutrients to allow them to grow and to withstand the transplant and to really put down some roots once they're transplanted into the bucket or into the paddy. Um, A lot of the nutrients will stay in the paddy. So rice itself, I I think, if I understand your, your question correctly, CJ, I don't think would be contributing too much to the to the agricultural runoff, if you construct a paddy, you're constructing a mini wetland, and wetlands are, as most of you know, are little sponges that really can absorb a lot of these nutrients as well as the water runoff. So as an ecologist, I was really interested in the effect of rice in mitigating nitrogen and phosphorus runoff and also mitigating erosion and flood damage with these more extreme weather events, precipitation events that we've been having in the Northeast. In addition to building the farm ecology, um, by constructing wetlands, inviting in biodiversity, insects, aquatic insects, isopods, crayfish, frogs, newts, you know, all, all these different animals will suddenly arrive on your farm if you construct these paddies. Um, so I would say that rice is a heavy feeder and pay attention to the early stages and make sure that you're giving the plant enough nutrients so that it can grow and survive through the seedling stage. Um, but otherwise, um, we did fertilize regularly, but if you're using the duck system and the azola system, you're providing enough. I don't. I guess it would be a question for Ben to see if he needs to further supplement his rice patties in addition to the ducks and the azola fern that he's using, or if that's a sufficient system. Yeah. Well, we this is we've still been adding some um, some compost to the system just as. We kind of excavated down to subsoil clay and put some of the topsoil back on, but wasn't able to, we weren't able to put most of it on. So at least for the initial prep, we put down compost last year. And so the patties that this is year two of, we didn't really put much down. We just used the Azola and Ducks, and they, yeah, the rice seems to be doing really well in there. Mm-hmm. Great. But still, yeah, still, still figuring that out. <laughs> Okay, and it seems like in terms of um, another question I had was soil types. It seems like clay areas are going to be the ones that are more conducive to the to the rice growing uh, for water retention rather than if you had a really uh, fine sandy loam of sorts that was really well drained. So it seems like it's commonly it's going to be in a more heavy clay soil area. Is that correct? I would say yes, that's true. Yeah, okay. 
I'd say for the upland stuff, I, I know plenty of people who grow Dvorskian, and we're actually we're trialing around 30 different types of rice, and a few of them are upland varieties. And so I know people who grow, just, just in rows, they just grow the Dvorskian rice as transplants on fairly sandy soil. But, yeah, if you want to use the at all the paddy system or if you want to be growing lowland rices, clay seems to be the way to go. Okay, and I'm... Um, I mean, it seems like it's it's common in Vermont, but I know that here in Maine there's plenty of uh, wet clay areas on farms that could maybe be better utilized. Um, so, uh, and then, Laura, my question about the impact on, I was thinking about water quality. I guess initially I was thinking trying to concentrate these nutrients, um, you know, in a in a wetland kind of situation and just wanted people to think is, is that, could that potentially be harmful? Um but it seems more like the issues are addressing, uh, try to mitigate that effect, especially in your area if you're working with dairy farms or other livestock farms that could have heavy manure concentrations and managing that nitrogen and phosphorus runoff. So, Yes, I would agree. Mm-hmm. Um, and are there, as part of the research that you have done, or are there other studies that are maybe looking at trying to quantify how much these patties could be collecting rather than... Uh, you know, running downstream, so to speak? Mm. Um, not that I'm aware of. I know that in, I only actually know of one sizable farm in the Champlain Valley of Vermont, Bound Brook Farm, and Eric Andrus, who has actually constructed sizable patties. I think that, that it would be uh, possible to, to quantify that. Um, one of my farmer, Eric and I didn't collaborate on this project, but we have been in touch over the years about sort of the trials and tribulations of being a rice farmer in Vermont. Um, Ben Falk is a farmer in, uh, Moortown, so central Vermont, a more mountainous region, Mm -hmm. and he owns Whole Systems, uh, research farm. And he has constructed some patties, um, but as far as I know, I don't think that they've quantified or collaborated with anybody on quantifying the amount of nutrients. Ben mentioned earlier the International Rice Research Institute, or ERI, in the Philippines, and they are an amazing institute, and I'm sure that they have some data, not for our region, but I'm sure they do have some data on on your question, you know, how much are these patties actually absorbing when it comes to nutrients and nutrient runoff. So, it's IRRI Erie Institute. Um, I think that there there should be some information out there about that. Okay. Okay. And I'm. Can, I'll, can I chime in for a sec? Definitely, Ben. Go cool. ahead. Yeah, along the Erie lines, um, in terms of research and other information that's already out there, something I've chatted with, I also know Eric as well um, at Boundbrook Farm, but. There seems to be a ton of information that also might answer this question out of Hokkaido, Japan. And they, yeah, they've been growing rice like this in similar climates for a very long time. And the big issue is translating it. And so if there are people on air who have, just have a huge impetus that speak Japanese that want to help out the rice growing cause in the Northeast, there's tons of literature that would be great to translate that I have only seen in symbols I do not understand, but perhaps they address that question. Okay. And, and then to address the, uh, the runoff question, uh, something we've been doing with our patties is, one, making our berms 
high enough so that if we were to get a massive flood event where there would be a lot of runoff over the berms, hopefully that, hopefully that wouldn't come or that would come every 100 years or something. And then the other thing is below our patties because they actually run into an ephemeral creek that then runs down into the Kennebec, and we did not want to disrupt that water system and didn't want to be adding excess nutrients down to the Kennebec River. Um, we have some winding creeks that come out of our rice paddies downhill and kind of ebb and flow through our woodlands where we're going to be planting a lot of different plants to hopefully absorb those nutrients. So if we did need to drain our paddies out at some point, hopefully those nutrients would take that up. So if people are thinking about designing their paddies for the future, it's nice to think about what's uphill of the paddies and also what's downhill of the paddies and maybe trying to create some space for excess nutrients to be collected if indeed the sponge doesn't absorb all of them or if you have a big rain rainstorm. Okay. All right, just thinking about some of the, the environmental sides of it just to get a good picture on, on how this is actually being grown. And then I guess another another question, uh, Ben, that I would put to you when you have have these plants out there, are you are you in the paddies working with them? Are there weeds that are sprouting up? Some weeding needs to be done, or does the water and the and the ducks take care of most of that for you? Yeah, I think if we had all our systems down, um at the start of the season, our weed pressure wouldn't have been as bad, but the first year in the paddies, the weeds seemed to be pretty low. And in year two, we start definitely start getting some weeds. There's one that's called barnyard millet, which seems to be a nemesis to rice all across the planet. Um, it looks like rice basically until it, it flowers up and then it goes to seed really fast. And it can grow in dry climates. It can grow in wet climates. There's certain weeds that if it's dry enough, they can get established, kind of like ladies' thumb and devil's beggar ticks and some other grasses that if it's not flooded and they can get established, then even if you do flood it, they're still going to be there. So, but in general, we have not spent much time in the paddies. Uh, we've spent a little time digging because we're trying to create some trenches to hopefully overwinter some fish. But the weed pressure has been really minimal and... Yeah, it's just kind of controlling the water levels and just kind of watching from the side. Most of the paddy work has been either in the spring when we're transplanting or in the fall when we're harvesting. But seeing some other farms in Vermont, I assume that as time goes on and on, the different weed species, the different cattails, uh, smart weed and different things that seem to like this kind of environment are going to keep coming in. Okay. All right. Well, I'll take another quick break to remind listeners that this is Common Ground Radio brought to you by Mofka. And today we are talking about growing rice in the Northeast with Laura Hill from the University of Vermont and Ben Rooney from Wild Folk Farm in Benton. Um, And I guess another another question um, is kind of the use of the rice when you're done. Is it... Uh, I mean, suitable for human consumption, I'm imagining, but also I was wondering if if uh, there are uses there as maybe a livestock feed as well, if, if people are looking to grow their own grains for, you know, maybe feeding poultry or something like that. Do either of you have um, any experience there? Um, other than the ducks accidentally eating the rice, 
um, that's my only experience feeding the rice to uh, the livestock. Okay. Right. I, I know rice um, is an interesting grain. It's it's one of our most important cereal grains, but it's one that's mostly grown for human consumption rather than animal feed in contrast to other grains. Um, if you want to consume the grain, you have to go through multiple steps of threshing, removing the grain from the from the rest of the plant, removing the chaff, so um, the process of dehulling. And then um, if you and if you're okay with brown rice, you're done. But if you'd like white rice, then you have to take an additional step and you have to polish the grain with a talc uh, powder to remove the bran. So m- the rice that we grew, we didn't take those steps of threshing and well, we thresh, but we didn't dehull and we didn't polish. Um, I know Ben Falk in Moortown, Vermont, also hasn't done that. And one of the main things that I hear from farmers in Vermont is the lack of mechanization to grow rice. So the, the lack of transplanters and hullers and uh, dehullers and um, polishers. And any and most of this equipment comes from Asia. So you'd have to import the equipment from Asia, which some farmers have done. But then what happens when the machine breaks? And, you know, so, there, so there's a lot of issues around the lack of mechanization in the Northeast for growing rice. Um, if you just want to harvest the seed as is, you can save those seeds from year to year and just use that as, as your seed um, for, the, for next year's crop. The way that we started, um, and I think Ben mentioned this as well, is we got five grams of seed from the USDA. It's the Dale Bumpers Research Station down in Arkansas. And you have to make the case for why you need the seed. So there's usually a, a research component that must be part of this, but the USDA will send you five grams of any cultivar you want, really. Um, we grew four cultivars. Hayayuki, which has been mentioned, um, was one. Hayayuki is one of the ones that has is most, co- I would say, one of the most commonly grown cultivars, at least in Vermont and, and in the region. But we tried another cultivar, and it's called Matsumi. It's M-A-T-S-U-M-A-E. And that actually outperformed Hayayuki. Um, we also tried another, those are both from Hokkaido, Japan. We also tried a cultivar called Akita Komachi and it was from Akita Japan northern Japan didn't do didn't do too well at all really it was a a late flowering one we just ran out of time but we also tried one from California and the California strains don't have as beautiful of names this one is called M202 (laughs) there was M12 and M101 as well so M202 was one that we grew we had a lot of, of success with M202, the California strain in the Champlain Valley, which tends to be a bit warmer. It's a zone 4B. Um, didn't do well at all, though, in Ben Falk's farm in central Vermont, which is zone 4A. So it, so these microclimates that we find in our region are really important, and I would encourage farmers to branch out a bit and try new cultivars. Um, sounds like Ben is growing a lot of different cultivars. There's a farm in southeast Vermont, the Akaogi Farm, a.k.a. O-G-I. Takeshi and his wife, Linda, have been growing rice for many years, since I think 2005, 2006. And they do lots of trials, and they have great success with some. They take great data. So they have a lot, they're a wealth of information for our region as well. Interesting. Okay. And then um, I guess on the seed-saving side, Ben, are you saving seed from year to year to replant? Definitely, yeah. Uh, a nice thing about rice, which Laura kind of got into a bit, um, is the isolation distance between different varieties is 
very short, so you don't have to have a lot of space between the different varieties. And, yeah, we've been saving the Hoyoyuki variety. This is, yeah, for three years. And the other one, the Borskin and Yuki Hikari. Um, so, yeah, after we harvest it, and then basically after threshing it, it's ready to store. And then hopefully this year, um, with trialing some red rices, some long grains, um, if a few of those finish in our in our window, then yeah, we'll save that seed as well. Okay, and are you doing any of um, any of the polishing or anything like that for processing along the way? I think you mentioned that briefly that the processing was another another uh, step yeah. in in and of itself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have not done the polishing. We've only gotten so much so much rice to actually eating quality because we've just been using a mortar and pestle. Um, just to try to make sure it wasn't as yummy as we thought it was going to be. Okay. And, yeah, we haven't got any polishing equipment. I don't think we plan to. We plan to probably get a huller from either Japan or China, as Laura alluded to, um, something that we can hopefully work with here and, and retrofit if we need to. But we haven't really processed much of the rice. We haven't, we've only had enough to save for seed as we've been trying to get up to an acre of rice. We started with five grams, and that was enough for us to plant 600 square feet the next year. And then we saved enough to plant an acre, and we planted some of that, and a lot of it's just sitting um, at the farm, just in five-gallon buckets, just waiting to be processed as we kind of develop equipment. And we're hopefully trying to develop equipment for homesteading model and for commercial models, so that'll look like some bigger electronic for gas-powered hauling equipment, and then um, some bike-powered threshing equipment and hauling equipment as well. That some other people in Vermont and the Texas guy out of Delaware uh, have been working on creating some bike-powered systems that we're hopefully going to use. Okay. So it seems like maybe if we were to talk about some challenges, then maybe that final processing piece could be a bit of a a challenge just basically in equipment or the infrastructure that we have here in the Northeast to make it possible. Does that seem to be the case? Yeah, that's not all. Yeah, I think the biggest, yeah, it's kind of it's similar to the upfront cost of developing your paddies. It seems that the biggest hurdle with growing rice in the paddy system is the upfront labor of designing your system. If you have a pond that holds the water, and then if you have these paddies, and then on the back end, the processing equipment and, you know, the cost for that, which can easily be shared. is something that a lot of other farmers can use. Um, but there's a guy, Mark Fulford, who's working on a, a gas-powered thresher, and there's some people, there's some murmurs around, but it's kind of this whole chicken and the egg thing of, oh, if there's enough grain growers, then there'll be impetus to design that, or we need the equipment before, and we're kind of in this limbo spot that we're trying to get out of. But that's definitely... I think a big reason why a lot of people are not growing grains on a smaller scale is because they don't want this massive equipment to be producing rice at a similar, you know, at hundreds or even more acres. That seems to be how most grains are grown in this country. Mm-hmm. But also don't want to just use a mortar and pestle and get five or ten pounds a year. Okay. Okay. And then I guess on the other, uh, thinking about the equipment piece, in terms of if there were potential in the future for kind of a shared equipment, um, in terms of timing, if the rice is harvested and stored, 
Um, could it could it sit in storage and you could wait for the dehuller to come around to your town? Um, or is there a really time-sensitive piece where it has to happen within a certain window after harvest? No, with the, with the, even with the threshing, too, there's definitely some windows. So if you just you harvest the rice and if you can either dry it right then on stock, hang it upside down. There's different methods you can look up to do that online. Um, and then same with the hulling. Yeah, I mean, that rice... That rice will stay in that seed code and viable if it's in a cool condition for years. So, yeah, there's definitely there's definitely some flexibility in terms of sharing that equipment. Okay. Yeah, I agree with and, Ben. And one of the great things about rice is that it 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 really could be one of our staple grain crops. I think people have had. Um, you know, there's issues with wheat and other grains because of how wet it gets up here, and there's fungal pathogens that invade. Uh, wheat and destroy the wheat but with rice it, it will it will keep it's very very shelf stable and it's very attractive for a staple grain for our region okay all right well let's i just want to remind listeners again that this is common ground radio um and we are talking about growing rice with laura hill from the university of vermont and ben rooney from wild folk farm in benton um and i guess just in terms of the, back to that um you mentioned fungal diseases for other grains. Laura, are there any kind of major disease or pest issues that we have in the Northeast that would be a challenge? Um, as of right now, no. Um, but in talking with farmers, it's just a, it's a waiting game. So in, in the future, it, especially if we continue to expand the amount of acres that we use to grow rice, the diseases will find the plants. So it's something that we'll have to face in the future. But right now, I... I personally had no issues with disease, um, and I haven't heard from any farmers that have had issues with diseases. One thing is uh, I do believe now that I'm thinking about it, Takashiyaka Ogi down in southeast Vermont I think was experiencing a bit of, uh, and I don't know exactly what, but I think he has been growing rice for probably 10 years now. And I think he's just starting to experience some of these pathogens that can move in and attack the plants, but nothing on a large scale. Okay. Ben, anything happening for you in that in that area, pest or disease? No, not that I'm aware of. Okay. The biggest pest, I think, are the birds that come in and try mm. to eat the grain. So we, we constructed, we put up netting when the grain was heavy, when the plants start to flop over, uh, and, you know, probably... About a few weeks now, I guess, or even now. Uh, I'm not growing rice, so I don't exactly know how it is. But the birds will come in, and they will build the, <laughs> the ducks, too. We we had a bit of an incident at Ben Falk's farm um, a couple years back. He he does the duck Azola system as well, and his ducks knocked down the fence and got into the paddies this time of year mm. um, and got most of his, of his grain. So that was a frustrating thing. Um, we also saw, you know, small rodents, mice, and stuff climbing up and, mm-hmm. and devouring the grain. So I would say in terms of the pests, it's mostly the, the animals that really want that grain. Okay. All right. Ben, I heard you kind of humming in agreement that the ducks could be an issue. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yep. <laughs> um, yeah, they're beautiful and cute, but they definitely add another element. Yeah. Okay. All right. Well, um, 
you know, we're getting, we have maybe a little bit more over 10 minutes left in the show. And I just wanted to ask, you know, both Laura and Ben, I don't know if you guys had questions you wanted to ask of each other while we're all kind of here, so to speak, or, um, I just wanted to open that up if anything came up in the last, in the last 10 minutes here, just because Ben, you mentioned you had read some of the SARE research, um, but I'm just going to put that out there and keep on asking other questions, but feel free to to jump in and be quasi-host for a moment before the show was over, if you'd like. Um, well, one, one thing I've heard from Vermont farmers is that weed control was another one of the major issues in addition to the lack of farm equipment. And it sounds like, um, well, in, in addition to that, most farmers will flood their fields to simply control the weeds. Um, so... Getting back to the to the Erie Research, the International Race Research Institute, one of their main focuses lately is water management strategies in rice. And when you flood a field or flood a paddy and you create those anaerobic conditions, that is going to, over time, release a lot of methane. And methane is a really much more potent than carbon dioxide, a really potent greenhouse gas. So on a small scale, it's not going to have a big effect, but on a large scale, thinking about the Philippines and those regions, um, it, it, these, these patties are releasing a large amount of methane into the atmosphere and exacerbating the effects of climate change. So that's why we took a close look at water and how much water do these plants actually need. And our main result was these plants really need standing water at the very beginning when the seedlings are transplanted. But after that, the soils just need to be saturated. And as Ben mentioned, um, it really also depends on the cultivar. So with the weed control issue, when the field is not flooded, it invites in all of the other weeds that are not maybe so tolerant, like the barnyard millet of, uh, of the uh, range of conditions from dry to wet. So I guess a question uh, for Ben is, would the azola, the water fern, would it grow if the soils were just saturated, not flooded? and do you think that that would be appropriate enough to control the weeds along with the ducks? Hmm. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, the azola seems to survive when it's moist, but it doesn't seem to uh, spread unless there's at least a little bit of standing water. Mm-hmm. Is what we found. Um, yeah, getting the dust. Yeah, that's a good question. I guess I don't feel like I have a definite answer by any means. I, I wonder with the methane, if there are dust in the patties constantly churning up the soil, I wonder if that helps um, keep it aerobic and maybe that will lower the methane amount. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they do enough to really keep it aerobic. I guess water and soil get anaerobic pretty quickly. Um um, but yeah, once once the azolla is there, it, it on that kind of moist soil that you're talking about, where it's saturated. If you could just if you had a flat patty, I could definitely envision you just adding a little bit of water, a little bit of water, and that azolla is going to stay there. Mm-hmm. It, it might not spread as much. I mean, the great thing about azolla is it creates so much biomass when there's water there. It's, just, it's kind of crazy. It's, it would definitely be an opportunistic invasive species if it was warmer, but it can't take frost. Mm-hmm. Um, so I can see maybe that working. I don't. I don't think that would work with the ducks necessarily. But okay, maybe there's a future sayer 
grant proposal <laughs> in there somewhere. Um, okay. Are there, um, you know, as we're just getting into the last last minutes, you guys have mentioned some different resources, but I'd like to um, maybe just, Laura, if you could mention a couple good resources if people are interested in looking for more information, maybe where, how they can access uh, the SARE grant research. I know that they have a website with um, summaries and things available. Could you maybe give some of that information out for folks? Sure. So let me let me get back here. Um, In the Erie, uh, yeah, Institute. definitely. So uh, so it's just s a r e dot o r g, and that'll get you to all the information about SARE, the Sustainable Agriculture Research and Education, the grants and education. Mm-hmm. Um, my report is there. You can really search a lot of different reports. I have a website with some resources, so my website is, um, sorry, let me just get there and make sure it's correct. So it's www.uvm.edu backslash and then the tilde L-H-I-L-L. And then I have a uh, rice research tab, and that takes you to um, multiple links, the the Erie site, the International Rice Research Institute, which is just org. The Dale Bumpers National Rice Research Center, which is where you can place seed orders for the five grams of seed, um, mm-hmm. the USDA.gov um, link, and also uh, a link directly to Ben Falk's farm, the Whole Systems Design Research Farm, and their rice paddy agriculture. I also have a link to the Rice Growing Manual for anybody who's interested, anybody who's listening who's interested in starting rice. I know that Ben and I talked a lot about sort of the issues that are surrounding rice farming in the Northeast, but don't let that keep you from trying because it's as easy as if you have five-gallon buckets that you can fill with soil and make the soil saturated or even have some standing water. You can put two to three plants per bucket, and we had great success. We grew, um, we had to sort of extrapolate these numbers, but we grew over a ton of rice in buckets per acre, and you can grow up to two tons of rice per acre. Um, successfully, so it really you can you can get a lot for just a planting a small area, um, and then the rice growing manual is a PDF that was created by the Akaogis down in southeast Vermont, and it it I, I followed the manual. It takes you step by step of how to how to how to do this, how to start the seed. It takes about a week to germinate the seed, transplant, etc. So all of those links are linked through my website, my UVM website. Okay. All right. And then, Ben, I think you had mentioned um, some similar things, but maybe there was a book. Was it The Power of Ducks that you had mentioned? Yeah. Uh, the book, The Power of Ducks, which is kind of hard to get your hands on. We have a copy that um, I can share with people, kind of tied to some of the Internet stuff. And this, this has, I think, a lot of the same links that Laura mentioned. Is it Northeast Rice USA or something? It's, it's basically it's tied to the Akeoli Farm, and that's been a huge resource for us. It has the rice manual. It has a few of the fairgrounds. I think Lori's yours might be up there. Um, has some really nice pictures too. And yeah, just to kind of echo what Laura was saying as well. Yeah, just definitely give rice a try. Um, you can start small and either get seeds from USDA or feel free to use us as a resource. We're we're trying to share all of our equipment we're going to have and also share seeds with people and share information. So if people want to 
come see the farm or in Benton or kind of at the outer range of WVRU's radio. Um, but feel free to contact us, wildfolkfarm.com. We have information and yeah, we're, we're really excited about getting other people growing and trialing. We have 15 or 20 other people trialing seed with us across the state. And I think most of them are having a really good time just growing rice for themselves. Even if it's in five gallon buckets or this random West spot, it can, you know, you can just kind of have that little relationship and, yeah, in terms of the yield, too, and what this means for for the Northeast with all of our clay soils, all the wet climate and clay soils we have, and then the yields are just it's higher than any other grain. It can produce, uh, you know, two tons per acre. That's higher than any other grain around around the Northeast. So there's definitely some cool implications that could be had for trying to create some food securities in, in areas such as grain that we're kind of lacking behind in. Well, it definitely sounds it definitely sounds promising. Uh, looking forward, so uh, we are. I think we just have a couple minutes left on the show. So I wanted to thank you both again for being here, um, or over the phone, but still being here on the show with me. And to remind folks, this was Common Ground Radio, brought to you by the Maine Organic Farmers and Gardeners Association. Um, today we discussed growing rice here in the Northeast. And we had Laura Hill from the University of Vermont on the phone. Laura, thank you so much again for being here. Oh, thank you. It was a pleasure. And Ben Rooney from Wild Folk Farm in Benton. So thanks again, Ben. And I hope your hay delivery goes well this morning or later today. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And then I just wanted to remind folks that uh, the first Friday of September, Common Ground Radio will be back, and we'll be talking about some on-farm solar projects. And tomorrow, WERU's Funathon Pledge Drive starts at 7 a.m., so keep an eye out for that. And think community radio, think supporting uh, the great work in public affairs, spoken word uh, shows that happen here. And I believe you should stay tuned. Looks like Joel Raymond is getting ready for On the Wing to get going. And uh, thanks again, everyone, for tuning in. This was Common Ground Radio. Have a good day. Support for WERU comes from our listeners and from Scudic Arts for All, exhibiting Fleeting Pleasures, Summer 2015.